You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now then, as is our custom, to join me as we open the Bible with one another. We're going to be in the 20th Psalm, and so Psalm 20. If you've got a Bible, uh, do me a favor, join us there. Maybe if, if you don't, do me a favor and reach. You'll see a Bible maybe under the chair beneath you in that rack in front of you or behind you. Not behind you. Don't, don't go behind me. In front of you or underneath you. Um, and for us even, if, if you don't own a Bible, please do me a favor. Let us give you that as a, a gift. Please take that. If you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, we want to put God's Word into as many hands as possible. So if you've got a device or in some way you can make your way to Psalm 20, in the, the very middle of the Bible is the largest collection of, of songs or hymns and psalms that we have here. There are 150 of them, and you'll find them pretty close to the middle. Make your way to the 20th one. And, and as, we, as we make our way there, our goal then as a, a church then is, is we, would, we describe this as kind of like the summer in the Psalms. This is a, a rhythm of many of our uh, many churches that have gone centuries ahead of us. But, but also for us, it is, it's a way to ruminate and reflect upon the language that is most often quoted in the New Testament out of the old. The language of prayer, the language of lament, we saw that the majority of the Psalms are crying out to God in some sort of displeasure for the way that things are, and, and we're invited to do that. There's a way to complain to God rather than about God, and then we're invited to into understand the language of thanksgiving and praise, and, and the life of the Christian is meant to be taught by and modeled by the language of the songs and the Psalms in the same way that many of the, the, the most profound things that you know, you don't even realize it, but you learn them through some poetic means. And, and the way I illustrate this often is like, I would love to come later today, come introduce yourself to me if you learned the alphabet without a song. If, if you learned the ABCs, Without the song, A, B, C, right? If you just, I would, first, I'd love to meet your parents, too, because they were like, no, 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 singing, A, B, C, right? Like, you probably learned it in Latin after that, I bet. But, like, you learned it through a song, a silly song, even. And most of what you do, the, 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 the book that you're opening, the, the, the things that you're looking around are, are, are predicated upon something you learned through a song. And so the poetic language, the, the rhythm and, and the, the imagery that we find in the Psalms is, is meant to be just that. It's like the ABCs. It's the tune that's humming in the background in the life of faith. And so in Psalm 20, I want you to see, we're, we're diving into here a psalm that's called, it's known as a royal psalm. That is, it's about specifically David the king. And as we read through it, we're meant to ruminate upon a history lesson that we'll talk about in just a moment, about the, the prominent, the most powerful, and the most prosperous king in the history of, of God's people up to this point in the story of the Bible, and, and that is King David. And, and as we do this, you might wonder, why are we doing that? Why are we ruminating on this? Well, I'll, I'll say more about this in a minute, but in this sense, these promises that God gives us in people like David for the life of the believer in Christ, they serve as a, a, a stimulus to reflect upon and to understand the nature and work of Jesus more deeply. I'll say more about that in just a moment. So as we reflect on this king, David, and as we reflect upon him and look through him and the story of his kingship, we behold Jesus. And I want you in to invite you to do that with me now. Beginning in the title, which was, would, have, would have been the very first verse at the particular time that this was collected, to the choir master, a psalm 
of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we Rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I want to begin with a question founded in the climax of this psalm. What do you brag about? Now, if you don't readily know the answer to this question, you probably have people around you who love you who can help answer it for you. What's the thing you try to slip into every conversation? What's the thing you're kind of hoping people would know about you? It's something very adept at turning any conversation toward. Like, oh, you mentioned that. Have you thought about this? Did you know that I also, right? What do you brag about? Now, now in the life of Connection Church, we, we want to be a, a grace-filled community. And, and we believe that part of that is that, that God gives us people who love us and care for us enough to help in grace us to answer this question. What do you brag about? If you look the, at the climax of this particular psalm, beginning in verse 6, where the psalmist declares, I know that the Lord will save his anointed. I know he will answer him. I know he will save him. And then the declaration, a, pro- a proclamation of faith in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Most literally, that word, and it's translated elsewhere this way, is the word boast. That word trust. Some trust in, but we trust in. They trust in this, we trust in this. Quite literally, that word is boast, brag. Some boast in, trust in, brag about, try to point everything toward this. They try to make everything about this one thing. They'll slip it into every conversation. They get an opportunity to do so. But we boast in, brag about, trust in what? The name of, see all the capital letters in the word Lord, Yahweh. I am the God that is. 
And so this psalmist invites you and I in the life of faith to learn in the first five verses how we might ought to pray as we see how others in this story of salvation were led to pray, but also what it is that we're invited to proclaim. So this psalm, as I said, is about David. It's of David, but it's speaking as a royal psalm. And you'll see just these are scattered throughout, especially this section of the psalms, as they're divided into five different books or chapters, if you will. And so you'll see in chapter 18 is another royal psalm. The psalm immediately following this is also considered a royal psalm. That is, it is a psalm that is about or celebrating God's blessing upon their king. And that particular point, the writer here of the psalm, who maybe participated in writing it or maybe wrote all of it, you see the language here gives us kind of a hint that maybe he wrote part of it and then some of it was written to him or about him afterward, is about the king, the most prosperous king, that is David. And at this time in history, as you follow the track of the Bible, as God's people rebel against him, but God shows mercy by delivering them and giving a promised land of their own, they rebel against him again and say, we don't actually want you to be our king. We want our own king. And God says, fine, I'll show you grace in that too. And so, so in, in the best way that they could, in their rebellion, God blesses them with a prosperous and mighty king. A king that we find later that is connected in some way, has a very a heart that is after the heart of the Lord. And that king is David. And when Christians... As we ruminate on the Old Testament, whenever we come across characters like David, like so many other characters who are positions of leaders, or they're, position, they're in positions of leadership, they, they serve some powerful role, they offer us, and the best analogy I know to give you, as they point us to that which is to come, is the analogy of an appetizer. Now that's the best analogy for me because I see my world through the lens of food. You just listen, you'll be like, man, he really... He's already thinking about the next meal, isn't he? Like, wow. <laughs> An appetizer. That is the work of the chef to give you just enough. To whet your appetite just enough for that which is to come. Now, it, the, the analogy starts to break down in some ways because my favorite appetizer, some of you know this, is chips and salsa. Or any sort of carb that's served in some sort of casual dining restaurant. And, and instead of thinking, oh, this, I'll just have a few of these chips to whet my appetite for that which is to come, I'm going to eat six baskets. Like it's just, there's like, this is, right? And there's nothing worse. You go to a Mexican restaurant, they're like, we don't have refills on chips. I'm like, well, what do I do here then, right? Or like more bread, please, and more of the butter. More, more in fact, just that's the butter. Just keep bringing the butter. And so the analogy falls flat in some ways because we are so prone, I know at least myself, we're prone to, in our hunger, feast on the appetizer such that by the time the entree comes along, we're not even, we're not even hungry anymore. And we miss the purpose of a, a wise and good chef. The purpose of an appetizer is that you, you're satisfied just enough, just enough such that you're actually more hungry for something deeper and better. And so for us, the Old Testament in many ways is that. It points to that which is to come. And David, this king, serves as one of the most powerful appetizers for that which is to come for God's people. Now you and I saw this lesson powerfully uh, uh, over a year ago when we walked through the book of Judges. In which case, each one of these leaders that delivered, quite literally, God's people from each enemy of these particular 
tribes around Judah and Israel served as an appetizer, but they were incredibly disappointing, right? They, they do some awful things, and yet they serve their purpose rightly. In fact, the more disappointing that you find out characters like Gideon and Samson really are, the more flawed and the more corrupt and the more morally bankrupt you find them to be, the more you understand how good they are at doing what God sent them to do, namely to point to the deliverer and judge that is to come. And so the study of David and ruminating on the hymns and psalms that he wrote and, and ruminating on the nature of his kingship is for the Christian in many ways deeply, deeply disappointing. When you read about his own sin, how he abused his power to take advantage of Bathsheba and to cover it up, murdered an innocent, at this particular a man of valor who had pledged his life to defend the king. deeply dissatisfying, but for the Christian, that's okay. Because when we look at this king and we think upon him, we're meant to think and savor the appetizer in such a way that our appetites are wet for a deeper satisfaction. The appetizer gives us a hint as to what is on the way. The appetizer lets us think and picture like what the chef is capable of. Like, man, if he could do this, then there must be something better on the way. And so this to the choir master, a hymn to be sung by God's people was to thank God and to ask God for deliverance, quite literally, if you see this in the very first verse, the setting of the psalm, in the day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So the first five verses are a prayer about the king, asking God to bless the king. Now, you see that because the you in this, did you hear the, the multiple you, the second person singular, is quite unique. Now, we've seen psalms that are, that are I and we, right? The first person singular and plural. Songs of lament and praise, I, I, and right? The, you hear this throughout the psalms. You even see the, the psalms that are in the third person, singular and plural. Think about the first psalm. Blessed is the one, the man who, right, who does not, uh, who does not walk in the way of the wicked, stand in the, in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, right? Like this third person and then second person, typically, when it's second person singular, it's almost always a declaration to God. So when you see the you in the psalm, almost always it's like, you, O Lord, you, God, you are this. But there's something unique about this psalm. This you, we find out, is not to God. And the hint we find is when we see in verse 6, the declaration that this is ultimately a prayer for salvation for his anointed. That word anointed, it quite literally, is the word Messiah, and it would have had the, the nature of kingship all loaded into it. It carries with it all of the language of, of laying hands on blessing and anointing someone to lead, especially as king, but anointing someone to lead and serve God's people. And so when that person is saved, verse 6 tells us that we'll know that it's from heaven that God has delivered him. Verse 7 the way that the Lord is going to save him, and in the, in the context in which the Lord is going to save him, that gives us a hint that this really is about David, you'll see also in verse 7, the language of chariots and horses. Now, this is the language of the most advanced military technology available at the time. It might even say it's the most advanced technology, period, at the time. It's at least the most advanced technology with respect to transportation, how people get around. And then lastly, the, the indicator that this you, this second person singular, is about David. O Lord, save the king. Then may he 
answer us when we call. So it's as if, and I know many of you have engaged in this practice even toward me, and hopefully I toward you, as if someone were to ask you, how can I pray for you? It's as if David, the king, says, in response to those who have asked, how can I pray for you, King David? He says, here's how you can pray for me. The day of trouble is on the way. And that day of trouble for me might even mean military conflict. Here's how I want you to pray for me. Pray that the Lord would answer me. Pray that the name of God would protect me. Pray that he would send help from his sanctuary. Pray that he would support me from Zion, that is his holy hill. Pray that he would remember my offerings. He would regard my burnt sacrifices, remembering my sin no more. Pray that he would grant me my deepest, the deepest desires of my heart, fulfill my plans, Pray that he would allow me to shout for joy over salvation and then other people, the we, they would celebrate and lift up their banners in victory. Get the picture? And so David is asking people to pray, and he's in fact leading God's people to pray for him for a specific thing. A deliverance, a hearing, a salvation such that the people celebrate. Such that, did you hear the language? It goes, you you, 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 second person singular, until it turns in verse 7. And then it changes to now we. So, right, God save you, King, King David, God save you such that we, in verse 7, and then verse 8, and verse 9, we will trust, we will rise, and then he that is the king will answer us. And so through this, we get a picture, what I would argue is the story of the Bible, the way in which God sees fit to have created humans to operate, and therefore the way that God has revealed himself to humans. Namely, in almost every instance in the Bible, God has seen fit to raise up a godly representative, an advocate, a a, a singular entity, a leader that will represent the people to God and God to the people. It's just how it works. And so for us in Christ, we, we know that that language is, is pregnant with meaning, is it not? That God has raised up, quite literally, Jesus from the dead. He's raised up Jesus to be the advocate for us in our sin and, and the advocate for God and his justice and mercy, such that now we, we, we relate to God on the basis of what? The leader, the, the singular entity. His son is perfect and spotless, lamb slain without wrinkle or blemish. That's our hope. That's the way that God works. Such that even when we think about Abraham, to pick the character in the Bible, right? We think about Abraham, we think about the ways in which we, we are, by this entity, by, by Abraham, this leader that God chose to, to call out of paganism to be the first of chosen people to receive this unmerited promise of grace and deliverance. And so therefore we see, yes, indeed, the promises of Abraham true for us. We think of Noah, right? The being delivered. When we think of Moses, we're reminded of the promises fulfilled for us in Christ of deliverance as freedom from the bondage of slavery, sin, death, and hell. Until finally, for example, you get to David, where when we see David, we begin to realize that this is, as God has done, one of the many instances in the history of his delivering his people where he introduces himself by raising up an individual, a leader. And in some profound way, the fate of the people rests in the fate of the individual that God has raised up to represent them and deliver them. But I also mentioned that's just how people work. 
It's not only how God reveals himself, but I believe it's how God has designed us to work. Namely, that we are prone to and we like to raise up heroes, don't we? Now, now your hero might not have any virtue or merit. Right now, in, in, in place of heroes, we talked about this in the book of Judges, we have in place of heroes, we have celebrities, right? But people we want to raise up and look to, and, and in some small, small way, we'd like tied our fate to them. And so also, we're meant to look through this and see the ways in which God had raised up David in the time of trouble to deliver God's people and so also now this whets our appetite because in the end David's still not king right David's not alive anymore none of us are none of us think that Jerusalem is the capital city of our kingdom under God's divine command this has gone but for the Christian that's okay because David's only purpose was to whet our appetite to the king that was to come. So, the day of trouble is on the way. And what we find here, and I want to encourage you and commend these two, what we find is how do you pray when the day of trouble is on the way? What is it that we declare? So I might break this into the two parts, one through five, and then six through nine is like, what are the, the petitions and proclamations of those of us facing the day of trouble? What is it that we are supposed to pray and declare in the day of trouble, even before the day of trouble? And what we find out is that we are called to pray for a specific thing. And I believe that if I could invite you to look through this story, this historical event of what God did through King David, if you look through it deeply enough, I think you will find what Christians believe to be their deepest sense of hope and deepest comfort. Namely, that God has given us a king, an anointed king, who delivers his people. We savor this appetizer because we know the joy that's on the way. So let's just walk through just some of these things. I think there are themes that stand out that, like I said, commend us to how we ought to pray, right? Think of the tune of the ABCs. This is the underlying flow of what it is that Christians believe, what it is to be the people of God. And so he says that a day of trouble is on the way. And for David, this would have been military trouble. This would have been attackers, marauders from outside. And so we're invited to see in the struggle of David then, and God's people through David, what it means to simply live in the world. That is, that we are, if not in or past, certainly, like David, praying for and thinking about the day of trouble that's on the way. For some of you, I know that's more profoundly present in your consciousness than it ever has been. The day of trouble is on the way. And what we find is the declaration following petition is a declaration of trust in the midst of, in the face of, quite literally, trouble. And here's what the Bible teaches us, and we see it at the climax of this particular chapter. There is simply no other way to reveal what you trust in other than the experience of trouble. There is no other way. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to experience life that is fallen, that is marred by sin. 
that what we truly value, what the language of Christianity would be, and I would encourage you if you're not a believer to con- contemplate the, the way in which this is, in fact, true for you, even if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, is that the language of worship, the language of adoration, the language here of trust, boasting, bragging in, is a natural tendency of humanity. And nowhere, nowhere in the human experience is what we worship, what we trust in. Think of it this way. The thing we're most religious about than when we experience trouble. And so we we see what it means, what it looks like to pray in the face of coming trouble. But then we see what it is that we're supposed to declare. Knowing that trouble will reveal the thing that we value the most. I've shared this with you many times. The past year and a half has revealed more than it's caused. It's revealed much more than it's caused. Now, I I don't want you to miss the most profound revelation that I shared with in in March when we first began to like quarantine, lockdown, and figure out how to deal with COVID as a church. One of the most profound revelations is throughout the scripture, and that is how frail humans are and how frail their way of life really is. Over 2,000 South Dakotans are no longer with us related to how frail we are in the face of a virus. And so however you want to respond to this, one thing, don't miss this, one thing is clear, how frail we are has been revealed. But so many other things have been revealed, right? So many other chasms and fractures that were already beginning to exist in your heart and mind, in our ways of life, in our ways of being, our ways of relating, our ways of gathering. So many fractures have come to the surface. And do you know what revealed all of those fractures? Trouble. I don't, frankly, anecdotally speaking, know anyone who was like, in the last year and a half, are you thriving? I just don't know. And then they're like, yes. Best year and a half ever. Like even, like even the most introverted people locked down are like, this is great. And the other, they're kind of like, but then I got lonely. Like, don't tell anyone, right? <laughs> I just don't know anyone who's like, my life is better because of COVID. My life is so much better now. I just don't know anyone who said that. And so the last year and a half, I would point out to you, is at least one of the many observations and applications this psalm makes. Namely, it is likely the case then, if it's true that this has been at the very least a trying or difficult or frustrating time, then you should take seriously what the psalmist tells us. What you value has probably come to the surface. What you worship, what you trust in, literally what you boast in is probably on display for everyone who knows you and loves you. It's probably somewhere in what you railed against over the last year and a half. What you wept about what you longed for, what you rested in when things seemed difficult. Now, where do I get that? Well, notice that the prayers of the first five verses that that lead in the declaration of trust are not a prayer. This is is so important for me personally. I just invite you to see this. This may apply to you, may not. But notice his prayers are not to avoid the trouble. Did you catch that? His prayers that he would be answered, right? He would be protected. He would be supported. He would be helped. 
he would find favor, he would be remembered. Did you catch all that? Like, so here's the thing. In my own prayer life, where, where this particular psalm commends a type of prayer to me, and I would even argue rebukes me to the depths of my soul, is most of my prayers, if not all of my prayers, are not for deliverance from trouble, but it's for avoidance of all trouble. I don't want God to meet me in the trouble. I don't want to, like, walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no... I, I don't want to walk through that valley at all. And if I were to write this, I'd be like, Lord, maybe no trouble. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. There's no more. If, that's, if you just, you know, if you would just not give me any trouble, then I won't even need you to protect me, deliver me, right? And notice, this is a profound truth that the Christian takes very seriously. And it's a commendation of prayer. Jesus, of the many promises that he gave to us, that he'll never leave us and forsake us, some of his declarations of promise are dark. Namely, in this life you will have trouble. And I want to say, no, Jesus, no, 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 not really. That can't be true. His disciples didn't want to believe that either. Such that when he told them, no, there's trouble coming and I will lead the way. They said, no, no, I'll die before you're handed over and killed. So the first commendation of prayer and petition we find here is that we often, instead of praying for us to be dependent, praying that we would be protected by God, we would just rather be God and avoid the trouble altogether. But notice... This commendation of prayer is a mirror image of the first temptation of the people in the Garden of Eden. Namely, they wanted to be like God. They didn't want to live in glad dependence. They didn't want to live in a a garden and cultivate it in the presence of God. They wanted to be God. And the prayer here, a, a prayer commended to us by the psalmist, is that we wouldn't pray to be completely like, to avoid all trouble, but that instead we would be dependent and protected and delivered by God in trouble. And then there's the proclamation. The you, king, turns to we. Light of what's coming, that the Lord would protect his anointed. Now then, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Love it. Verse 6, 7, 8 are, are in many ways a, a beautiful summary of the gospel, the good news of what Christians believe, that God has answered these prayers such that now we can declare, I know, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. I know he'll answer. I know he will save with the might of his right hand. Again, sorry, all you left-handed brothers and sisters. I love you. It's just a, it's just a saying. Don't read into it too much, right? So some trust in these things, some boast in these things, but we trust in the name of the Lord. They collapse and fall. What a, what a profound declaration. But we rise and stand upright. These are the things we know. This is the good news that I want to invite you to believe. That God will not abandon you. That on the cross, Jesus prayed for you. That you would be forgiven And that prayer that Jesus had for you and for me, the Lord answered. The sacrifice that Jesus did once and for all for you and for me was what? It was remembered. 
It was received such that now we can say, I know the Lord will not abandon those he loves. He didn't abandon Jesus on the cross, and now united to him in faith, he won't abandon me. He will answer me just like he answered Jesus. Even through the depths, even through the grave, the Lord will not abandon his anointed. And all the other things that we might trust in, all the other things we're prone to trust in, might fail. That's not right. That will fail. <laughs> I just gave some idolater really hope. Like, it might. It might. <laughs> Pastor John said it might work out. I mean, no. All the lesser things that we might trust in will certainly fail. But the rock upon which we stand, the name by which we are saved, is the name Jesus, the deliverer, the God that is. So what does that mean for us? This is a declaration of hope, a posture of confidence in the name of the Lord. Again, that defies the kinds of confidence that the world would want us to have. And so think of it this way. Our struggle in this life is against delighting, trusting, and boasting in things other than God. That's our struggle. That's the battle of the Christian life. To see all the delightful, beautiful, wonderful things that this world has to offer and to think that they really can satisfy. That's the battle. Now, the Old Testament language is the language of idolatry. You'll hear as a church, we use that language often. It's the language of not simply like making some sort of strange image and you're bowing down to it, right? It might be that, but, but for us, it's, it's trusting. It's taking things that might even be good and making them ultimate. Trusting in things as though they can deliver you and give you lasting hope. And knowing that they, verse 8 tell us, will collapse. They will fall. And yet, since we haven't stood on them, since we haven't grounded our lives upon them, we'll stand. We'll rise. We, we will remain upright. So, friend, this is a declaration of hope in the midst of and in the face of trouble. Think of it this way. When, when you face trouble, what's the thing that you find yourself going like, well, at least, you know, fill in the blank. At least I still have, fill in the blank. And that's at least one of the things that you likely trust in. And if when all things fall apart, the end of that sentence, the blank that is filled in isn't, well, at least I know I have Jesus. And that whatever you fill that blank with will likely, again, I did it again, will certainly collapse and fall. And the last year and a half, I would say, is proof of that. But this invites us to a posture of confidence. I love that phrase in verse 6. I know. I know. I know the Lord's going to deliver us. I know the Lord's going to get us through. That's the good news. I know it. It's good. It's finished. It's done. I know it's going to happen. So here's what this means for us. And something that, that has been profoundly impactful for me is uh, over the last, I don't know, as I just kind of listened to, to, to prominent voices in Christianity kind of speaking back and forth, something I've heard that just starts to murmur at, at first but get louder and louder and louder. I've heard this probably my whole life by what I would say are kind of fear mongerers. And, and, and it's something like this. You've heard it's like, X, fill in the blank, is the greatest threat to the gospel. Right? You heard that? We're like, or this thing is a great threat to the church. Anyone who believes 
that there was a threat to the gospel has never heard the gospel. There is nothing, nothing sure, nothing steadfast, nothing as firm as the finished work of Jesus on behalf of repentant sinners. And people say there's a threat to the church. Anyone who thinks that has never heard about the church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Friend, we know, we know, we know that the Lord will save his anointed. And if the Lord will not abandon Jesus to the grave, then the Lord will not abandon his people either. And so you can trust in other things, but they'll fail. And those that trust in the name, the sure name of Jesus will stand. And they'll remain standing. And there is nothing that anyone, no power, principality, nothing, neither height nor depth, you hear the language in the New Testament, that can separate us from the truth of God's love for us in Christ. Nothing. What a profound declaration in verse 6 that he invites us to to say, right? I know. I know. I know that the Lord will deliver me. I know the Lord keeps his promises to me. And so, the declaration, think of it as like, how do we pray? What's the petition in the first five verses in the face of trouble? It's to hope that the Lord will be glorified as he delivers us. And what's the declaration we have in light of this? We know that the Lord has never failed us. He won't fail us now. And so the phrase, you hear the verbs in there in verse 6, we know. In verse 7 and 8, we trust. And in the last verse, we stand. We stand up. That is, we get up from being down, dead in sin. But we also remain standing in the midst of being assailed and being tried to knock down. And so we trust in these things. Now, notice... He, he, he gives a jab, though, doesn't he? He says, by the way, little little object lesson, some people are going to trust in horses and chariots. Now, as I said earlier, this is, like the, this is like the most advanced technology at the time. Some people are going to trust in these things. And in the end, it's going to fall. Now, he doesn't at all say chariots and horses are evil. He doesn't say that. He just says they're not worth your trust. In fact, he in many ways admits how amazing they are. They're so amazing that some people have put their hope in them. They're so amazing. Some people are like, well, at least we have all the horses and the chariots. They think to themselves, all I need is a chariot, or maybe all I need is more horses or a better horse. And those who hope in those things, we find, are the most hopeless of all. I can share with you personally, I have had many horses fail this last year and a half a lot. I didn't even know I was riding them, right? I didn't even know I didn't even know I was I didn't even know I was trusting in them. I didn't even know I was hoping in them until they started to fall. And rather than rising and standing upright as they fell, I, I felt myself falling with them. Many of my hopes, many of the things, many of the dreams that I had, I had fall. And the result is I'm sad. And I am hopeless in those times. But then I hear the gospel. That our blessed hope, the most wondrous and beautiful thing to behold, is what God says about me and to me in Christ. Such that 
to be born again by faith. That's what it means to be Christian. It's to behold Jesus as the greatest object of delight. The greatest object of trust. And the greatest object of boasting. Some boast, brag, and trust in these things. But I am going to boast, brag, and trust in, delight in Jesus. I'm going to let that be enough. Knowing that when I tend to boast, brag, and trust in these other things, I'm, I'm saying to Jesus on the cross and walking out of the empty tomb. I'm, I'm all over the map here. I didn't walk out of the empty tomb. They just, you can walk through walls. You do whatever you want, right? But I'm saying to Jesus in that moment, it's not enough. Oh, sure, you died and were tortured on my behalf. Oh, sure, you overcame death, but I'm going to need a little more, Jesus. I'm going to need you to tack on some prosperity in this world. I'm going to need you to tack on some political power. I'm going to need you to tack on some comfort, and I'm going to need you to tack on some approval of my friends and peers. I mean, think about it. In the end, all of these chariots failed. All of these horses failed, even for David. Did you catch that? Like, in David's day, he wasn't even beaten by chariots and horses. What was his downfall? (laughs) Sin. His own family turned on him and did the most damage. And even though maybe he had won some battles and in this sense was never overrun by foreign kings, he was completely and utterly overrun and destroyed by sin. It owned him. It owned his family. And the next several uh, books of the Bible that follow this story, the book of Samuel, Kings, and, and Chronicles, is the story of the rise and fall of people and broken leaders. And sin owns and wrecks them all. But in our day, our king has defeated sin. And you and I hope in these things. So that when, not if, When those lesser hopes begin to crumble around us, we are reminded of how sure and steady our hope in Christ really is. Our kingdom in Christ is not a kingdom of chariots and horses. Let me retranslate that. Chariots and horses, right? They're just just a symbol for the most valuable thing of the day for that particular group of people. Our kingdom is not based on the most advanced or glorious thing you can think of in this life. Our kingdom is radically different than that. And our king taught on this incessantly. Our kingdom is more like a mustard seed. That's what our kingdom's like. Everyone else is trusting in their chariots and horses, but we trust. This is, it's like a mustard seed. In a minute, it's going to blow up, right? Our kingdom is like a woman who loses a coin, right? And turns everything upside down to find it. That's what our kingdom is like. And even when challenged with this, before he was sentenced, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants wouldn't have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Hear that language? If my kingdom were of this world, then we would have definitely been hoarding horses and chariots over the last little bit of time, right? My kingdom is that I'm going to take the very best that you have to offer. 
all the chariots, all the horses, all the power, I'm going to absorb it into my body and it will look like it's defeated me. It will bury me in a grave and three days later, I am going to raise victorious. That's what my kingdom is like. Matthew even tells us that King, or Jesus teaches us, and Matthew relates to us that, that this kingdom doesn't inflict violence. This kingdom actually suffers violence, and violent men try to take it by force. And when you lay aside your preferences to serve someone else, when you pursue the wanderer, when you turn the other cheek, you testify to our trust in and boast in another kingdom. And when you trust in chariots and horses, all the things that you desire the most from and for, you're saying, this is my kingdom. Now, here's the thing. If the Lord gives you a chariot or a horse, praise God. I want you to get that. But I want you to know how tempting it will be for that thing to become your hope. Remember my question? What do you brag about? What do you really boast in? What if the answer to that question is actually something the Lord wants to slowly but surely dissolve and crumble around you such that you will boast and brag in a greater thing? What do you brag about? Is it your achievement? Is it your appearance? Is it your youthfulness? Or maybe your age and wisdom? What do you boast in? What do you really brag about? Is it how smart you are? How accomplished you are? How cool you are? One way to ask this conversely is to say, what's the thing that if you lose it, a mentor of mine put it this way, you've lost it right? What's the thing in your life that if you lose it, you, you lose it, right? Like you, you lose your mind when you feel this thing threatened. And I want to invite you to consider that that thing that you trust in and hope in, if it's not Christ, it's a chariot and a horse. That's, that's where this analogy lands the best, doesn't it? None of you rode here on a chariot or a horse, right? I love the analogy. Like even Some of you actually own horses. I love, thank you for doing that. But here's the thing about horse owners, right? How do, they get from, how do they get from A to B? They put their horse in a trailer. It's like, and what a profound exclamation mark to this. Like some people trust in that. Some people think that. Some people think that their pursuits and their loves and affections in this life will be enough. And when they fail, they'll realize they've seen it wrongly. Here's what this means as we celebrate seven years as a church. We don't celebrate as a church the way that the world celebrates. And it's tempting. We don't celebrate, celebrate celebrities or celebrity pastors. And to deliver you from the temptation to celebrate a celebrity pastor, God has given you me. <laughs> You're good. You won't. You have a celebrity pastor? Well, no. We had that guy, right? Well, he's really, yeah, I get that a lot. I know. 
as a church, we're tempted to celebrate some of these things as the world celebrates. In this new season of our life, this is where over the next few years, we become an established church. And the things we establish will be the culture and values and mission going forward. And you'll have to ask yourself, is this, is this going to be something we celebrate as the world celebrates? Like, praise God, the Lord has blessed us. We're in a building that we now own, right? We're a seven-year-old with a mortgage, right? Praise God. It could be really tempting, really tempting by the world's standard to measure that as a success. We don't. We celebrate mustard seeds. We celebrate when the wanderer comes back. That's the kingdom we celebrate. And those are the means by which we operate as an embassy to a kingdom that has come. We don't use the world's tactics. We don't vanquish enemies. We pray for them. We count the kinds of things that Jesus tells us to count. Not chariots, not horses. Jesus tells us that the angels in heaven celebrate. They throw a party every single time, what? Someone gets a new chariot? Every single time a sinner repents and is welcomed back into the family of God, all of heaven erupts. That's why we sing on a Sunday. We sing on a Sunday because it paints a picture of what's happening every time we repent. The whole of heaven erupts and welcomes back like, a, like the father to the prodigal son slaying the fatted calf to, to throw a party that the, that the lost and dead son is now alive. And so we celebrate all that God has done in and through the life of our church. In the last seven years, I thank God for the blessings that he's given us, and I ask that he would give us more. I pray that God would instill in us these kinds of prayers that are an image of what we receive in Christ, not simply what we can receive in the world. And so look, there's a, we're called to thank God for plans. Did you, did you catch that? We, in verse 4, we may God grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. That's a loaded statement, is it not? And even this is a way we ought to pray for one another. For many of us, it would be a nightmare if we got our heart's desire, right? If we got the thing we really, really want, it'd probably kill us and everyone around us. And so what's he saying? He's saying that ultimately you're going to be like me. You're going to be united in me. And then the things you start to pray for, I'll satisfy. And here's the encouragement we get from this. Anything you've ever prayed for and the Lord has said no or you haven't gotten it, it's not because he isn't going to give it to you. It's because, as he tells the prophets, the thing you're asking for is too small. Right? We, we look for pleasures in sex and in stimulation and power and achievement. And it's not that the Lord wants to deprive us of pleasure. It's just that those things are appetizers for the pleasure that is to come. And we repent of finding pleasure in those things. Because in that moment, we've forgotten what we really know. That in the end, God is going to give us something better. God is going to fulfill his promise. And our heart then is shaped to desire better things. So don't stop wanting pleasure. Don't stop praying for prosperity. Don't stop praying for blessing. Just stop looking to cisterns that can give no water. Stop praying to things that can't deliver. Look to God in the way he is lavished, Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing upon us in Christ. And how will he, who did not spare his own son, hold anything back from you or me? The most highly esteemed thing on earth is the thing that we begin to hope in. And genuine faith is to behold the beauty and esteem of Jesus. We trust in the king 
in our day of trouble because the Lord has heard and delivered him and passed on his victory to his people. You see a picture of this. Did you catch that in verse 5? He gets saved, he gets delivered, but then we get to celebrate. Now, in some small way, we're going to do that today, right? We're going to eat tacos and food and cotton candy. And in some small way, we get to celebrate because God has shown mercy to us. But just ask yourself for a minute, what are the banners that people wave? That's not really a thing, right? You would think, well, that's silly. Who would, who would wave a banner? There's at least two places I know. One, sports. Right? And like, and some of your sports fans, I know I've been there. I've tried to get away from it because I'm tired of letting my life and my emotions be dictated by dudes playing with a ball on TV. <laughs> that's just me. and That's not you. Maybe, maybe that is for you. I don't know. But you're like, yeah, we won. I love that. When a fan's like, we won. I'm like, we? What would you do? Like, <laughs> did you, did you, did, like, but we, right? And I want you to see, like, that's, that's silly, okay? Just be very clear, that's silly. Um, and you know who you are. But in some profound way, you're testifying to a biblical truth. Here's a crash course, again, on, on, on some theology that, that helps us be informed about this. There's a, what we believe is a federal headship. That is that we are in, or in, uh, we are in, in federation with someone. And everything you need to know about the gospel, you could say, is in Adam, in Christ. That's it. In Adam, we are, Paul tells us, dead and sinners. But in Christ, we are alive. We are resurrected, right? We're in federal headship with those people. Like, we're in Christ. That's the phrase over 200 times in the New Testament. In Christ, we're in it. And so you're right. In that sense, you did win the Super Bowl or whatever, right? Sort of. Here's the other place where people put out flags and banners. Politics. They'll put it on their, on their yards, on buses, you name it. And so, yeah, the Bible says that we will be in federation with our leadership. And the Bible even tells us that no people has ever thrived when their leadership languishes. But even then, do you see it? Do you see how those can be temptations? to wave a banner for something that will not satisfy? I could go on and on, but those are just the first two I could think of that we wave banners for. But for us, what Christ has accomplished and how the Lord delivered him from the grave is our cause for waving a banner. It is our celebration such that now we are Glad to say, I trust all my future to Jesus. I'm throwing all of my weight behind that. Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so this is how God works. He unites his people to the fate of a leader. And for you and I, we're invited to profess faith, faith and trust and boast in the fate of our leader. We are in Christ by faith. We are participating in his blessings. We are now pausing on a Sunday morning to prepare to enter into days of great trouble for you and for me. This is the calm before the storm, right? 
And so therefore, it's a time of prayer, of anointing, and worship. And by doing so, we become ready, we become ready for the day of trouble that is to come because we are certain we know the outcome. Friends, if the resurrection is true, then what on earth do we have to fear? We trust the king in our day of trouble. We trust Jesus because he rose from the dead. I invite you to make plans in light of that. For some of you, it might even be, as we celebrate this in the life of our church, it might be to profess faith in Jesus. You'll see that link in in the comments and on our website. You'll see a way that we would love to hear you respond, and that is to maybe take a step to, to make your faith in Jesus public in baptism or to profess faith and trust in this good Jesus that we sing about and we make so much of, we boast in. For some of you, it means to, to give sacrificially to a church and the, the mission of the church that will outlast the gates of hell. For some of you, it means to become a member. For some of you, it means to be sent out as a missionary. And for all of us, we, in this calm before the storm, even now, can worship and trust in Christ. We can hear his invitation to draw near to him because we know, we know the outcome of the story. Jesus was heard in the day of trouble. Jesus was protected. Jesus was sent help from the sanctuary. Jesus was given support from Zion. Jesus has, and his perfect sacrifice has been remembered. Jesus has been granted his heart's desire, namely to draw all men and women to himself. He was lifted up, and Jesus was then now become our cause for waving of banners and celebrating. And now we know that the Lord has delivered and resurrected his anointing, his anointed one, his Messiah, from heaven, from his very right hand, so that we don't have to trust in lesser things. We can trust in the name of Jesus, the one to whom we look, who delivers his people from their sin. Let's pray together. We pray, Lord, in that strong name. We pray in the name of Jesus. We know that there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which people can be saved, and so we, we boast in that. We brag in that. We sing about that. We, we revel in that. that. God, help us to delight in that, and so in light of this truth and this knowledge and this declaration of finished work on our behalf in Christ, would you would you even now begin to call us to yourself by his name? If there's some in this room that they know the thing that they've been trusting in and they know how dissatisfying it is, would you even now begin to give them a, a tiny taste of savory sweetness and goodness of your mercy towards us? Might today those who maybe, maybe are here asking questions about who God is and what he's like, might they might they hear that God is a God of mercy, of deliverance, that he will be here for us even when the rest of the things around us crumble. Might those of us who have heard this good news and known this good news, might we even now begin to prepare for the day of trouble? For some of us, maybe the day of trouble is, is, has come and, and maybe we're living in it. Might you grant comfort to those who are, who are wandering? Might you grant peace to those who are restless? Might you give us a sure foundation to stand upon? God, we repent of and confess our faith and trust in all the lesser things. They fail and fall. But we thank you that there is a sure and steady rock upon which we can stand and build our faith. 
and that is Jesus. Lord, let that be the rock upon which this church even stands. And if we begin to stand on anything else, Lord, be kind enough to wipe us from the face of the planet. Let your glory and namesake be renowned. Let the banner we wave be the finished work and victory of Jesus. Let us celebrate and declare in profundity we have won because of Jesus. Thank you for this, by your work and by your mercy. Amen.